0: Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. A huge array of deadly weapons is amassed in East Asia. China says America is stoking the fire of regional tensions, while the US insists it's the duty of its armed forces to keep the peace and to prevent an aggressive China from striking an adversary, such as Taiwan. What goes through the minds of the pilots and air crews who fly through the region? How do they prepare for the prospect of conflict in which tens of thousands of service personnel could potentially be killed? I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast today a guest who's recently joined US pilots on missions and has written an article about his experiences for Foreign Policy magazine. Zuru is a research fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation. And a regular guest, and indeed host of this podcast. Suri, welcome back. Thanks,
1: Duncan, for having me. It's great to be
0: back. Now, this sounds like quite an adventure flying around at supersonic speeds with the US Air Force. One thing that stood out to me from your article was the enormous scale of the region that they're patrolling. What's it like to be in the cockpit of one of those planes?
1: It's amazing. Uh, it's a surreal experience. I should say that um, the F35, which is the plane I was I was uh, looking at for the article, the F35c which the Marines fly specifically is what I was looking at, is still a top secret plane. Um, so I wasn't in the cockpit of the f-35. I was actually watching the F-35 from the cockpit of a kc130 J which is a turboprop plane. It's a very large cargo plane that the Marines fly that also serves as an aerial refueler. Now, I know that seems like kind of a step down in terms of its uh, cool quotient, if you will. But for me, who's never been um, inside the cockpit of a military plane, it it was a surreal
0: experience. Well, I assumed that most of the pilots are men, but you met a husband and wife team. Tell me about them.
1: Yes, I did. They're both uh, lieutenant colonels in the Marines. And, uh, you know, as I say in the piece, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Courtney O'Brien, call sign Brittany, is actually one of the top ranked pilots in the Marines, uh, meaning she uh, she is believed to be one of the, 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 the most qualified and capable pilots um, across in the service. And Mike was also highly ranked uh, this is Lieutenant Colonel Michael O'Brien, but he's since retired and is now running for Congress in Pennsylvania, actually. When you look at how this chessboard in Asia is set up, it does look a lot like containment, right? Um, we, The United States is building these series of bases, large and small, what I refer to as hub, hubs, spokes, and nodes in the article. But When you think about deterrence, which is about preventing someone from doing something you don't want them to do, um, this is what I would want to hear, right? So the U.S. is doing something to prevent China ostensibly from invading Taiwan or fighting a neighbor, but can I be sure and can the U.S. military and politicians of the United States be sure that Chinese decision making is a function of what the United States is doing? Or, you know, so is this base create system, basing system the United States is coming up with? Are the alliances and partnerships that the United States is developing? Are these what the things that are preventing China or Russia from doing anything more assertive in Asia? And that link is entirely unclear.
0: Well, I think that's a very interesting point, Zuri. And of course, the way it's presented to the American public is that we must spend this money on defence in order to keep the peace. And I mean, you know, this is the most expensive thing that America ever spends money on, hundreds of billions of dollars every year. That's
1: a real concern. And, you know, you're right, the US defence budget is now approaching $1 trillion a year. And it's hard for me to wrap my mind around what that number means. You know, an F-35, for example, takes about $42,000 an hour to operate just to put some some kind of scale on this, right? Uh, The the program itself, which is designed to last until 2088, uh, gonna cost the United States nearly $2 trillion over the kind of almost 90 years of the program. Uh, and at the same time, the United States, the Pentagon, it keeps failing these audits. Where is the money going? How is it being used? There are a lot of, you know, a lot of moving parts that need to move correctly for what the United States is doing in Asia to work correctly if a war were to break out. Um, so there's a lot of unknowns on the United States on the American side about if they're spending the the right amount of money on the right things to achieve the goals they have for themselves in the region. I think it's a it's an open question as to whether there is a relationship between the means, you know, what the United States is doing and the ends, uh, the goals or the objectives that the United States has in the region. For me, that's a that 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 link is. Is not as clear as I would really want it to be.
0: You said that the figure on defense was how much, Zuri?
1: Approaching a trillion dollars. I think this year it's in excess of $800 billion.
0: I'm not surprised you find that a difficult figure to get your head around because that's a thousand billion US dollars, which is an enormous number. Let me give you something that you could compare it to. You know um, uh, Taylor Swift, the pop star, has been on tour, don't you? I do, yes. And, and that's the most successful entertainment event in the history of the United States. So Taylor Swift's era tour, which sold out absolutely everywhere, they reckon that the gross amount of money in ticket sales for that was $2 billion. $2 billion. And we're talking here about a defence budget of $1,000 now, that's a, that really helps to put the figure in perspective for me. Yeah, it does. And then when you think
1: about the fact that this is drawn from taxpayer money, and a lot of it is not, not given oversight that, you know, let's say the accountants that are involved with Taylor Swift's tour have. Then it, it it makes this even more kind of a, even more of a mind boggling figure, particularly four or five failed audits from the Pentagon. That's concerning to me, you know, with due respect to the people that are doing the, the work on the ground every day. But this number and the amount of spending and when you compare it to China, too, which is much smaller, although we don't actually know the full extent of Chinese military spending. I'm left wondering, what are we getting? You know, where is this money going and why is it that when I write about logistics and follow the U.S. military around in Asia and and ask questions about logistics, I'm not they're not the most successful and most amazing logistical systems ever invented in the history of man.
0: Well, you raised a lot of questions in your article. So what do you think from the point of view of the listeners to this podcast? What would you like the most to think about now You know, when it comes to thinking about this balance of power in East Asia?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think the big question for me is, how do, do American actions in the region change Chinese perceptions? So there's this concept that as one country or one nation grows its military power, that actually decreases the the security of another power. Right? There's there's a lot of political science literature on this. And we call it the security dilemma, um, and, and there's a lot of uncertainty in in, in the world. So you never know if someone is actually if one country is going to attack another. The thing is, is that I'm, I'm not exactly sure if these concepts really hold water in practice. Can we can we be sure? that England is not gonna attack France, I think we can be fairly certain. There's nothing preventing England from doing that. It, are we sure that Mexico will not attack the United States? Marjorie Taylor Greene and some Republicans are not, but I frankly am, and I'm sure that Canada will never attack the United States. The I think the point that I'm trying to make um, with these examples is that some of these kind of core concerns Um, that kind of come from political science and exist in American strategic and tactical thinking really need to be re-examined. So what is the United States doing that might be making China more insecure? What is China doing that is making the United States insecure? You know, when we think about a war in Asia, we often worry about Chinese missiles. Chinese missiles can hit the first island chain, right? Japan, Taiwan, you know... um, the philippines and now they can also hit the second island chain out to western um uh, west to guam and you know Papua new guinea um but you know what we don't talk about is that american missiles can blanket china you know and so uh, china might be worried about those missiles so how does the united states move away from this kind of threatening posture or at least figure out a way to dial down this kind of insecurity between the two of them between both China and the United States so that you can get to this kind of uh you know for lack of a better word détente you know uh, I I think we need to figure out ways of dialing back the tension and I think one thing I would I, I'm I'm exploring now is you know Deterrence is about preventing people from doing something that you don't want them to do. But there's two components to deterrence. There's a a negative threat, right? If you do this, then something bad will happen. But there's also a reassurance component, which is a positive incentive. You know, when I when you when you're trying to teach a child something, you say you can say do this or else, or you can say do this and this. Right. So a a positive reinforcement. And I think in the United States right now, we're focused on the negative incentive as opposed to thinking through what is the positive incentive, the reassurance that we can create with China that will allow them to kind of dial back the assertiveness or kind of the threatening posture, and then also provide us with a positive incentive so we can work together to to dial back the tension. I would want people to think through, well, what are the other options besides, you know, creating more hubs and spokes and figuring out novel ways to dodge Chinese missiles and and, and reading about Chinese anti-ballistic missile systems and American, you know, anti-ballistic missile systems and thinking through what are some of the positive inducements we can create for one another to kind of create a a potentially more peaceful and more kind of cooperative relationship in, in the Asian theater.
0: It sounds like it would be a brilliant subject for a day's uh, conference, actually. Thanks so much for joining us again, Zuri. That was Zuri Lelensky from the Eurasia Group Foundation on the line from Washington in the United States. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute in London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.